Purpose is an essential element of you. It is the reason you are on the planet at this particular time in history. Your very existence is wrapped up in the things you are here to fulfill. Whatever you choose for a career path, remember the struggles along the way are only meant to shape you for your purpose. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. There are a lot of podcasts out there co-hosted by two black people. This is not one of them. (laughs) Shout out to Tom, who wrote uh, an email saying that uh, sensitive blacks like you, Scott, people um, might not not be able to handle 12 Years a Slave. Have you seen that movie, by the way, 12 Years a Slave? I'm sorry, I haven't. Yeah, and you might not be able to handle it. So since he got I'm, your he got your race wrong, but since he got I'm your a, feelings right. I'm a I'm a sensitive black man, evidently. <laughs> yeah, shout out. And then I also wanted to um, <laughs> quickly uh, shout out uh, Molly. You know, I, I really love these messages. Thank you so much. Um, but I, you know, I like to have a laugh. She um, said in the email that you know she realized while listening to some of the early opuses of Triloquy, it was the first time she really heard two black people talking to one another. <laughs> and so, right. my, so my first reaction was like, "Wow, Triloquy." is so impactful look at this my second thought was but you've never just turned over to BET just for curiosity's sake or nothing I I really have to think that she was being hyperbolic yeah. I really uh, you know maybe at, may, maybe at length way. maybe at at length and, and maybe on on those topics or yeah. yeah and you know that and that was my first reaction was you know how long do we wait before we tell her I'm white you know <laughs> how long do we ride that out Oh, I thought she was talking about me and one of the guests. E- either way, I, I think it's I-, I think it's funny. So thank mm. you for thank you for listening. I I, um, I appreciate it. Uh, you got some uh, um, some announcements here before we get it to move with what? Yes, my uh, main announcement is uh, white people. Uh, you should start capitalizing the B in black when you are writing about people who are black. Straight out of the gate. Scott okay, is giving so, it up. Uh, no, I got you. You brought it up in in that series of tweets. And, you know, um, and I could have come back and said, you know, I'm not trusting Siri with nothing no more or anything like that. But why force another error? So uh, I just wanted to let you know that that is something for me that is taking a couple extra tries to get used to doing it. So, but uh, white people and other folks, when you're when you're writing the word black, just type the capital B. No, what about the W? Does it get a capital W? I knew <laughs> that you. I have never. I haven't seen one. Who who does that? Who have you seen do that? I, no, I, I'm just asking. I don't know if I've seen it. I think it would be a little aggressive looking, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh, I, I, I'm, and we're and we're not even in movement one yet. <laughs> Boy, you guys strap in and just try to go limp it's, because. It's, this but but it's, but it's good to have these laughs. You know, uh, Chadwick Boseman gave us the downbeat uh, for this opus. You know, shocked the world uh, with with the news of, of his passing. So you know, I've, uh, of course, we'll be talking a little bit. Um, 
um, about Chadwick uh, Boseman today. Uh, a really special um, guest today, uh, T. Sierra from uh, Atlanta. Uh, they are actually um, on their way uh, to Minnesota to, to start the uh, next chapter uh, of their um, educational uh, studies, urban uh, studies, a doctorate in urban studies. Uh, we talk about, you know, um, what a city is, capitalism, their uh, beginnings in music, um, how they apply certain musical concepts um, to, um, you know, the liberation of people, you know, in a, mm. in a new world, a really great conversation. And then uh, a few things to get into uh, in the triloquy. We we have spent a long time here in these. This is like one of those concerts you go to where they walk out and say, thank you all for coming. I'd like to thank the Booster Club. For, <laughs> you know, and you do all this for 20 minutes before the whole concert anyway. Sorry about it, but here we go, checking our accidentals. Scott, I, I, I feel like I want to put a sharp um, next to the life and legacy of Chadwick Boseman. I know the news is, you know, um, you know, really rough and and warm thoughts to, you know, um, his family and uh, and friends. But, you know, thinking about who he was as a person and, and, and what he you know accomplished and what he inspired is is incredible. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm putting a sharp there. Mm-hmm. Um, this week, um, Black Panther. Let, let's just let's just jump right in. So I'm not really and never was a Marvel person. So you know, mm-hmm. all of these movies that people went crazy over, um, it, it just wasn't you know something that caught my attention. No, you know, no no shade or nothing to it. But um, but this movie comes out uh, called Black Panther. I'm hearing about it, and people are excited. So um, that caught my attention. So like so many. Excuse me, like so many others, um, went out, got a really cool um, dashiki to wear Mm -hmm. um, on opening night. It was actually after a concert I was playing down in Knoxville. So I changed out of my very European uh, uh, tails and and bow tie and all that stuff into this very Afrocentric, you know, thing to uh, walk down the street and and see this movie. Um, Yeah, King T'Challa. Uh, helped us imagine, you know, and when I say us, I mean black people, imagine a very black-centered, Afrocentric place where um, we could be. Mm-hmm. And um, I, and, I, and I'm really sorry and ashamed to say that I wasn't uh, familiar with Chadwick Boseman or, or uh, much of his work before Black Panther. But mm-hmm. goodness gracious, did he help um, start a movement? I mean, what, what, what was yeah. your Black Panther experience? Well, I was one of those kids that was spending my time reading comic books and graphic novels. So you knew not, it from back in the day. Not only reading them, but I was very carefully turning the pages so that I wouldn't crease it. Sure. And then I had a bag and cardboard that I put it in, and then I had a trunk. Oh, you were that, that kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a collector, I was, and I was fanatical about it. And I had uh, I had maybe somewhere between half a dozen and a dozen Black Panther episodes, but I never followed it. The comic books. The, yeah, did I say episodes? Yeah, I meant uh, comic books, right? Um, but I didn't. I wasn't buying it on the series, you know, because there was a storyline that I just I didn't jump in on. And uh, frank, but, frankly, I was looking for comic books that uh, were uh, more uh, what the Avengers were doing. You know, things like that, those teams. Wolverine was my main man. But I I wonder, you know, for you uh, as a kid with Black Panther as one of these comic book characters, I I wouldn't even have, 
known about that. Did, did that not seem different to you or a different flavor on things? Or was it just, oh, that's Black Panther? It, it did. And um, I didn't identify with it, obviously, hmm. you know. So, um, so it was actively the black character, you know. Well, there was, there was a history that I wasn't hip to yet. And uh, also, you know, come on, I, I went to public school in in a uh, in the Midwest, you know. Okay, so yeah, yeah. you know, we're not we're not going to get too deep into African history, and yeah, I wasn't even certain how to say his name. So so fast forward to the Black Panther movie. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess I should ask. Um, Oh, were you a or are you a Marvel person? Did you go out and see all of these different Marvel movies? One hundred percent. Okay, one hundred percent. So I wonder for you, how do you think? Um, how was going to see Black Panther um, a different experience, or was it a similar experience to going to see what Superman? Or I'm sorry, I don't know the other Marvel movies. That's DC, but okay. uh, that's cool. <laughs> no, um, it was probably the largest event in the canon so far, without okay. question. And yeah. the reason being is because it was. Uh, speaking out to an entire section of uh, our country that just had not been spoken to and represented and did it in such a way that, um, you know, we, we, we see it where people are doing these tributes to the Black Panther. But you see, it, it goes deeper than that. There was a, an article that I read where this reviewer said that Chadwick as an actor develops his character from the inside out and the outside in. Now, what this means is, is not only do you understand your character's drive and their history, but you're listening to those around you and you're taking that and using that to communicate, right? So what happens when an actor does that well, you care about the character. Yeah. And so... Not you. You said you've never seen a, a Marvel movie, right? Right. Not in a theater. You know, it was never an event for me to go right. see a Marvel film, right? But to imagine, what what would have happened if if they half-assed that and didn't do the diligence that they did? I mean, we would have towed them up. You know how the you know how the kids are, see? as they say. <laughs> so, um, it 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 promised. And delivered, and maybe even over-delivered. Um, and that moment when everybody starts screaming in Avengers, you know, when he shows up, he's the first to show up through Doctor Strange's little portals, you know? Okay, this and, is in later movies. Yeah, and um, it gives me chills to think about. But also, look at, look at his other work. You know, yeah, Get On yeah. Up, you know, um, the dance moves for James Brown, he did those. He, you know, I, I really believed... The, the trajectory that his career was taking was setting him up for something like what Jamie Foxx has been experiencing, just sort of a, 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 a jack of all trades, you know, and, and mastering all of them. What is there to be said about Chadwick Boseman, you know, in all of these legendary roles, um, his playing legendary black people? So, you know, there was James Brown. I also understand there was Jackie, Jackie Robinson. Robinson. You know, we've already talked about uh, King T'Challa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, that seems like a pattern to me. You know, uh, uh, what what people, you know, what, what these casting directors, whatever, saw in uh, Chadwick Boseman, this this young, this fresh, but yet somehow old and wise uh, spirit, all matched into one. You know, um, it's I, I don't know. It's it's he, he was it's, incredible. He was, he was incredible. It was alchemy. Whatever talent he had was alchemy. He was because, a cheat code. <laughs> you know, he, he had he had to have been. He had to have been. The the talent lost there. And you know, I I I called you and Dell. I texted you and Dell right when I found out I was I was probably first on the scene I was on the air 
uh, it, it couldn't have been posted for 10 minutes when I shared it o- over the air. And then, you know, we always get on here um, talking about our problems and it's stressful and X, Y, and Z. He's doing all these movies and and, and all this stuff while keeping, you know, uh, colon cancer I from the world. I can't imagine. Know? And we talk about how hard our jobs are, you know. <laughs> he was doing it, though, and, and with such perfection. Okay, so we do actually have some um, orchestral news to um, talk about in these accidentals, but I'm going to throw another sharp out for um, my podcast hero, uh, Joe Budden. Mm-hmm. Uh, so last week, uh, it's been you know all over pop culture news how um, they announced why they have decided not to continue um, their exclusive contract. Um, with Spotify. And, you know, if if you know the podcast, you know, you can get into, you know, all of the backstories and all of the, you know, funny moments and serious moments connected to that. Um, but the, the reason why I think it's important to note why I'm bringing it up here um, is Joe Button uh, really talking about and protecting um, and going to bat for podcasts as a genre, you mm-hmm. know, um, you know, uh, talking about how he was, you know, offered for an a, uh, continuation of the contract that they're under now that's going to be over um, on September 23rd, I think the day uh, the, the date is. Um, when he talked about why he didn't take that large sum of money, um, he's talking about how impactful his podcast is as, you know, Spotify's, you know, uh, top, um, uh, you know, revenue uh, creators, you know, the the biggest audiences and, and, and you know, all that sort of thing. Um, how If they offer him, you know, one amount of money, uh, what hope is there for the smaller guys, you know, the smaller podcasts who are also trying to, you know, take their things and, and monetize it? Mm-hmm. You know, he, he has one of those projects where twice a week he gets, you know, uh, two and a half, three million people to sit down and listen to a three hour long podcast you know what do you think his days are like in between I mean I think he works hard and plays hard and uh, you know he'll 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 talk about the ladies he meets or sometimes just hanging out in his home alone and being depressed about whatever he's thinking about and you know I'm, I'm, but like, I'm sure he's busy but like when, when you're not recording triloquy there's things that you do each day to get things lined up Oh yeah, uh, or is he shooting from the hip every time he goes in? I mean, no. I, I, of course, there's planning and just you okay. know paying attention to the culture, paying attention to what's right. going on. That's in enough. The world. That's, That's enough. a job. Yeah. you know, keep it up with, uh, with, with all that. So, um, you know, um, it's got. I kind of wanted your um, feedback on. You know, again, protecting the art of um, the podcast. One, one of his big uh, points um, is that, you know, it has to be respected how this is a unique form. You know, it's not the same even as what we do uh, when we're on uh, the radio hosting hosting classical music. Mm-hmm. And all of your years of broadcast, um, do you think podcasting is a unique corner of this content creation broadcast world that requires, you know, different sets of skills that are, you know, unique to what this is. Man, there's there's TV shows where they give 
British people awards for making cakes. I mean, there's a <laughs> there's a show for everything, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, and I think that podcasting is going to be that for audio, and it's already moved past the spot where I'm going to be of any sort of help or influence at all. <laughs> what do you um, mean? Um, well, uh, a shout out to Steve Bergeron, uh, one of my oldest friends from back home in Omaha. Him and I have been uh, talking recently, and he has a son that's about 25, I think. And they're doing a podcast called the Game T Podcast. Okay. okay, so they, you know, they have one that's an expert on all these different formats. There's three of them, and they've got a great following for being, you know, only maybe 30 episodes in. And I don't know what the hell they're talking about. So what I'm saying is this medium has already moved past the part where I'm able to understand. And, well, <laughs> and, and also what um, networks or whatever are able to offer. There, there can never be on TV, you know, the niche things. Correct. That, right. That so we have Quibi, right? Front. Isn't Quibi, isn't that the new video thing like a... Tick, oh, is like it? a TikTok sort of, I don't okay, know. Sure. I, I saw it was a, a, um, somebody going to a drag show. How far away is it? It's long enough for a Quibi. And so he pulls out his phone and watches but what, a Quibi. But what about Quibi? Well, I'm saying that these short form mediums, you know, the, uh, are, are, you know, sort of like YouTube. You just take some, or TikTok, you take a video and upload it. You, yeah. you, um, could use a podcast to do a radio drama. You know, it's whatever you want it to be. It's dynamic. It, it's, yeah, it's it can be. It, it can be the vehicle for whatever your show is. And so, I think Quibi is that fun, fun, on the video side. You know, sort of like a graduation from TikTok. Maybe I don't know much about it. If you know, write us a note and say something. I do. I, I know nothing about Quibi. I don't know why you brought it up. <laughs> well, I, it, I I just think that media is changing to the point of access where there's just going to be so many choices, so, hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of ways to get it. So, with all of these, you know, th this uh, infinite number of choices, you know. Um, again, back back to you know the Joe Button podcast. If you're able to get all of these people twice a week, and you know when we talk about engagement, you know they they can measure how long people listen. Mm -hmm. You know, you know we're we're all there for all three hours. You know, twice a week. You know, over two million people. You know, these are these are you know network TV numbers. These are mm -hmm. you know box office numbers every single week. So yeah. you know, I think um, um, we're really seeing the dawn. You you know, with with him giving up, um, and I'll post the article to the uh, website description, all of that. I think with you know him saying no to the exorbitant amount of money that they offered him for exclusivity and ownership, you know, them owning that content, for him to you know say no to that, I think um, you know sets the precedent that this is something that you know really should be. Uh, respected and has already proven to be um, very impactful mm -hmm. um, and and really sustainable when you think about it. You know, all the people across uh, the, the field doing all of their different uh, podcasts, you know, uh, it's not about, you know, camera crews and makeup. And, you know, it's about if you can get the, you know, bare bones equipment you need. And you too can have a podcast. Do it. Right. So, um, you know, I, I, I encourage people, um, I'll post that 
episode number. I think there are two episodes. And, you know, if you want to scroll through um, and listen, I just think it's really important to, you know, understand what, you know, one of the top guys out here doing podcasts uh, says about, you know, the importance of owning your own project, you know, um, and and uh, valuing yourself more than folks from the outside value you, especially if you think that they don't understand specifically what it is you're trying to do, or if, or if more importantly, uh, as Joe Button points out, if these large organizations, these companies, don't understand the audience that you're speaking to, if they're just using you as a way to siphon their money to them, you know. So, why? Uh why are is there surprise that Spotify was like only out to get the clicks? I mean, they're not taking care. What was the byline on yeah, that? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that was well. The the byline off. Oh, I accidentally clicked something. The uh, the byline is simply Joe Button is taking his podcast off Spotify because the company is pillaging his audience. Right. Uh, you know. So you know, using. But their, we knew that. Right. And, you know, what he points out is that, you know, that he's getting out of the contract. He got it in the beginning for analytics to have full access to all numbers. Okay. And as you can speak to, you know, um, that has not always been the case for Triloquy, mm -hmm. you know. And, the, you know, there are reasons for that. And it's sort of, you know, the norm across the industry. Uh, he worked it out in this contract that he could get those numbers. He got the information he needs, you know, and he's um, moving away. Uh, that was more important than the money. So um, I think it's just a really... Uh, interesting thing. So, so yeah. if he takes his podcast and starts producing it through, say, his own portal, yeah, um, what do you think the going rate would be to hear it? Would you pay ten bucks a month just to hear Joe Budden? Yeah, I think that's the conversation people have been having. Me personally, um, I I think you know if if he charged something like um, yeah ten dollars a month. That's plenty for them because he has that many listeners, and I would, I would, I think I would pay that. It's a okay. You know, so it's then, a, it's a good, it, it's it's a it's content that I appreciate, uh, and that that's a that's a part of my routine. So yeah, I would. And if he says, you know, um, that, and why? Let me let me just quickly, you know, I'm, go, uh, ahead. go ahead because I'm trying well, to formulate. What I'm saying them. so so why? Because I pay, you know, we pay ten dollars for Netflix or HBO. Why not? I pay, you know spend that same amount of money supporting somebody black, something that centers, you know, right? Us. Okay, and it's going right into his pocket, not Spotify's. This is right. what I'm. This is what I'm trying to get at. So then, would that mean that he would actually have more to say? Start producing other podcasts or other video projects or creating the Joe Budden group, you know, with all sorts of media underneath this umbrella. I'm sure. I mean, he's already managed to, you know, put together a, a pretty hefty team for just a podcast, you know, who are who are all getting paid and taken care of. So, you know, that that's something that um, he values. And mm. yeah, I, I think I think it's a, a cool story. It's something how podcasts are our thing who who knew you know did you know you know a decade ago that you know podcasts would be what they are today maybe you'd heard of them but oh i would have thought you were nuts yeah freedom is important absolutely and the offer that has been presented and let me make myself clear there has been an offer presented of money that i have never seen in my lifetime money that you gentlemen have never seen in your lifetime Still not enough to make you sleep right at night with what was being asked for. 
You saw that article in the Baltimore Sun a few days ago, right? Yep. Nothing short of miraculous BSO and musicians signed contract guaranteeing performances through 2025. So um, before we jump into this, when we were coming home from Sphinx in February, I remember you said you actually shared an Uber with the president of the the Baltimore Symphony, right? Right. He is, um, for some reason, his ride was going to be like an hour and it was going to be $80 or something. So yeah, um, uh, Peter was his name. You said he, you know, knows Triloquy, right? Mm -hmm. He took my card. He seemed very... Did it seem shady? No, he seemed seemed very enthused. (laughs) Because remember, um, back when uh, Jennifer Arnold was on Triloquy, we talked about how the Baltimore Symphony was, you know, in some financial trouble Mm -hmm. back in the before for a time. And we talked about, well, you know, you aren't engaging your community. You know, how is your organization relevant to these folks who live here? And no wonder, and X, Y, and Z. But here we are. It looks like even through COVID, they figured out a way to bounce back. Mm -hmm. Well, um, don't you think that, Perhaps some of these organizations are actually listening to Triloquy and taking note. They could be. They could be. Yeah, I don't want to take credit, but you know what? So I'll I'll I'll, I'll just tell you honestly. When I read this headline, um, I thought to myself. Um, so I wonder if anything is going to be different. You know, my, my, my first question was about what they're delivering in this guaranteed, you know, when so many other orchestras are, are failing and not going to make it, you know, are they going to take advantage of, you know, um, trying to get to, you know, the audience that is in their community, you know, the, the critique we have for them before, that I have for them before, or is it going to be some more of the Mozart and the Beethoven? Right, it's hard, it's hard to see how they wouldn't default back to what they know yeah well there are some pay cuts here but right sizable ones um it looks like the base salary is going to go down to just under seventy thousand dollars it looks like a 20 some odd percent cut and now let's step anyway back, let's step back just from that during covid you know that is still a nice salary isn't it you know hell yeah you know it's 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 i really Maybe maybe there's some. That's, prob- I'm, I'm that's scroll- probably that's probably eight hundred bucks a week, right? I'm scrolling here, and I'm you know again, I'm just trying to find something concerning what they'll be bringing in these guaranteed seasons. Um, you know, even more so than how it's being delivered. You are, um, you know, all these folks have the opportunity to to continue this thing, this this orchestral music. Um, goodness gracious, mm. are they going to do something for? The folks who are struggling for the folks who, you know, are really just trying to stay above water through all this while y'all are, you know, outside of orchestra hall here playing a a what? A Bach? um, (laughs) A trumpet fanfare? Well, let's be specific. It was Carl Philip Emanuel. Oh, excuse me. One of the sons. Oh, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're really setting separating box and pepper here i'm not trying to be a hater but i mean do you do you kind of understand the energy i'm i'm putting forward like you know there are so many of these groups that are not going to make it and this orchestra is saying that they're guaranteeing performances through 2025 i really hope uh, they understand the responsibility they have especially in a city like baltimore and i will reiterate my challenge of the first orchestra to announce an all-black season wins I love that expression. Let me wait. I'll wait till the triloquy. I really wish that we were doing this on video because that expression just. I'll wait. I'll wait till the triloquy. Warms my heart. uh, So if you want to read more about what the Baltimore Symphony um, is uh, so excited about, I'll put that (laughs) in the description. Big cuts in the administrative section as well. There's that too. (laughs) 
the Knoxville Symphony Orchestra musicians file grievance following furlough announcements. So, again, all of these orchestras out here guaranteeing more seasons of, you know, what we've seen. You're going to sprinkle in some black music just to appease people like me. And folks who had a decent season actually planned out are not making it. Okay, so uh, uh, this is coming from W.A.T.E. News out of uh, Knoxville. I'll post the article here, but um what I have been seeing on social media from my former colleagues is that days before their season was supposed to start, um, this furlough season was jumped on them, and that short of notice actually breaks their contract. So, oh, no. so not only you know are they out of concerts and out of work, but you know dealing with musicians versus management and the board. And as someone who sits on the board for um, an orchestra, I am. You know, I, I I understand what the musicians are going through. You know, I, I play with that orchestra. You know, those are those are my former colleagues. Um, I but but I don't know what to say because um, what I wonder what these orchestras could be doing other than figuring out how to have concerts. You know, I've I've really been diving into that area of what if instead of taking this money that we've managed to scrounge together instead of paying for you know the hall and these rehearsals and X, Y, and Z, put the musicians in the community doing this, maybe even without the instruments, you know, maybe, you know, the, the, uh, the such and such symphony brass section goes and cleans up this city block. And, you know, maybe the orchestra can't pay them for the whole week of services, but, you know, if they can make that count for two services, you know, and, and how, what positive look will that have on the community? So, you know, why am I talking about this in conjunction with the Knoxville, um, symphony orchestra, I want them to, um, you know, get paid and, and, and get their money and, and, and do what they love. Um, it's getting hard, you know, as we continue through COVID and get closer to this election season and who's, who knows what's going to happen after November, you know, um, what are we fighting for really? You know, I want to fight for the livelihoods. I don't want that to get tangled in with my fighting um, for Beethoven. Um, and again, as I said before, that's that's considering the fact that the Knoxville Symphony actually had a pretty diverse, a pretty colorful season planned anyway. You mm-hmm. know, so they're, they're an exception in that regard. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. It's a really, um, I, I'm, I'm challenged, you know. And, of course, if I were still down there, I'd be, you know, trying to figure things out myself. So I've been lucky enough to not be laid off or furloughed yeah. so far. And um, so help me out. If you get furloughed, do any benefits associated with the job go away too? Yeah, I've never been furloughed either. I understand what it means is that you're just what, – what it means is that we're no longer paying you but – when we can pay you again, here we go. So it's not like you're laid off to where you don't have your job anymore. Right, right. It's just that your job right. is paused. Got it. Huh. So I wonder what happens to any, any benefits. I'm going to see if I can't go back on the Internet and put side by side the Baltimore, what the Baltimore Symphony had planned for uh, uh, 2020, 2021 before COVID and what the Knoxville Symphony um, 
had planned, you know, just to, you know, just to, just to see, just to see. Okay. Uh, and I'll, uh, I guess when I find those, I'll, um, I'll, I'll post something about that in the description of this. Shout out to everyone down um, in Knoxville. I, I feel like I kind of went on a, a weird tangent there. I guess to, to, to wrap my point up in a nutshell, I want every, I want all musicians, including my former colleagues down in Knoxville, Baltimore, everywhere else. I want everyone to be working. If cuts are having to be made if we're having to make a comedy if you know if you can't be in the concert hall like you used to anyway with the full orchestra because of covid if you're making all of these accommodations why not transform what the organization can also be which mm. is something that really serves the community so you know that that's all i'm saying sometimes i get tied between what i'm fighting for and um, you know, what is and the fight, well, what, and the fight, <laughs> right, right. So, um, to, to get us into, um, into, oh, what well, we, I, I, I'm always forgetting to give my accidentals. So I guess the Knoxville symphony story, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it a natural because, um, I think there's opportunity here. I hope that somebody listening to this can think about, um, what it might look like for Knoxville Symphony musicians to clean up Gay Street or play some um, music out on uh, on town. It's not Town Square, but uh, Market Square, out on Market Square or, you know, whatever. Mm. We'll, we'll see. Um, you know, the first time I was on national air, you know, when I guest hosted uh, performance today, um, I insisted that uh, one of the Knoxville Symphony recordings um, make it through that program. Um, so what ended up coming through was um, a performance of the Knoxville Symphony uh, uh, their rendition, our rendition of Jeff Midkiff's uh, Mandolin Concerto, really unique, you know, really Appalachian, really culturally relevant, you know, uh, piece of music for that part of the country. Uh, so here's a little bit of this as we get into uh, movement two. Garrett, we seem to have gotten into a pattern recently of sort of doing a, a little mental, emotional check-in with one another oh, right yeah. around this spot. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling with the COVIDs, with the, with the everythings? I am on the brighter side right now for sure who goodness gracious last week i had some really really rough days i'll get into that in the triloquy but yeah it's uh it's 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 better now it's always great to you know come in here and and lay it out for the people you mm. know get some of this energy out how about you uh i've i've been struggling again man i've i'm just uh I, and and i always think about things to say in the podcast when I'm experiencing them and then I get here and sit down in front of a microphone and it all jams up. Notebook. And I think that, Notebook. I think, well, I think that this is part of it. You know, even my short term memories kind of been affected lately sure. and, and sleep is all erratic. And so I found a, I found some music that sort of fed that. Uh, and you said that, you know, VJ Iyer and Brooklyn writers project. You've heard some of, well, not the project, but, but, uh, VJ Iyer, the composer, the musician, the, uh, the, the creator, mm-hmm. and also Brooklyn writer, of course, the string quartet. But, uh, but I, I don't know anything about this collaboration. Well, their piece called dig the say came across my dig the say, dig the say came across my randomized 
new classical playlist. D- dig the S A Y. Dig the S A Y. Okay. Dig the say. I'm I'm not sure what it means, and and I'm fine with that right now because the music itself it feels neo classical and neo romantic in different spots. You know, like they're imitating those eras, but then there's also this agitation about it. And uh, I I really like to hear musicians who can play the instrument in ways you're not used to hearing it, you know, so there's plucks up on the headpiece and um, making sounds that aren't traditionally thought of as acceptable coming from a string quartet. So a dissonance. There is a dissonance about it. But at the same time, it also was kind of feeding that Need, you know, I've been telling you I've been feeling anxious, like I want to like I want to be on the road. I want to find an adventure. I feel like I've got all this steam built up that is not having the sort of release that I'm used to having in a summer, you know, of going on a road trip or seeing a show. And so there was uh, there were uh, parts of the piece that spoke to me in that way. So if you want something that kind of sounds like you feel, check out Dig the Say, VJ Iyer, and Brooklyn Writer. Um, well, you talk about wanting an, an adventure, having all of this energy plugged up. I already told you that you're going to put the uh, single tap down here in my basement so that I have beer. <laughs> Um, and, are, I'll, and I'll let you exert all of the energy. I will be out of the way as you do it. I am not certain where the adventure comes in, <laughs> but um, okay, yeah, yeah. I would love to. I would love to have Blankenbrow on tap in new locations. Yeah, yeah. We'll do a. We'll we'll have to figure out some sort of Black Pride pour. You know. Okay. And, okay. And, and of course, it will be um, a pour. Um, in which I manage all parts of it um, and oh, do none of the physical labor. Shit. And that will be the beer. It's going to be delicious. And I can't wait to have it down here in the cooler with the tap that you've delivered. Oh, this is going to be great. Thank you, Scott. Now I wish we had video <laughs> to show my face. <laughs> okay. Um, so we're, you know, uh, I think I mentioned uh, today's guest, uh, TC Era. One of the things that they uh, mention and bring up is uh, the trap and trap music. So I wanted to um, take a quick moment to cover some of that. So for folks who don't know, I thought I would go to um, Urban Dictionary, our friends at Urban Dictionary. It defines the trap. I'm going to uh, read the first couple sentences here. A ghetto place that if you stay there too long, you get trapped there. The people and circumstances bring you down. You make friends with someone. They ask you for a ride to work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's very, it's, it's very anti-black here. Um, another definition says in Atlanta, it means the place 
where uh, drugs are sold, uh, like Gucci Mane say in um, his, his his music and all of that. You know, a lot of these definitions are sort of um, weird for me. But <laughs> basically, um, what the trap is, and this is something that uh, comes up in my uh, conversation with T, um, what the trap is, is a collaborative black place where, you know, for what it is, you know, there is violence there, there is uh, the selling of drugs, but there's also the selling of goods and the um, sharing of resources, you know, to help these people um, survive, you know, an opportunity that they didn't get um, by anyone else, right? You know, no no, no different programs or whatever. So, um, uh, so that's what it is. And of course, just like out of any culture, out of any community, you know, there is music that comes out of that. And uh, one of the um, artists that uh, T mentions as sort of a, a sort of culminating um, a group of uh, musicians um, who uh, have really uh, done their due diligence in bringing that into the 21st century, you know, this, you know, three, four decades old uh, art form now um, is Migos. And mm. uh, of course, one of the Migos, um, you know, thanks to them, you got to add a little bit of uh, vocabulary to your, uh, to your, <laughs> your own Rolodex. You learn, you know, this, 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 this little bit of stuff that I wear on my wrist here. How, how would you describe that now? That's drip. So anyway. Why do you laugh? <laughs> because I think it's cool that you're um, that you're you're learning that a middle that a middle aged white man can can pick up new vernacular. Do you have that... any Do you have any drip at home? <laughs> I have a Bolova watch that my brother from in Abu Dhabi sent me. So shout out to my Something brother from Alan. the Middle East. Whoa! No, it was actually when I moved here. When, okay. I, when I moved here, uh, it was in 2006, and uh, him and his wife Karen got me a very nice gift. Uh, a nice watch, and on the back it says "Seek Joy." Oh wow, that's a good that's a good affirmation, especially these days. And you can check the time and uh, um, be seeking joy. Now, how do we? But with time being weird and anyway, I let, man, let's I need, j- jump off the trail. But <laughs> yeah, I need something closer. Yeah, being better, taking better track of time would be good for me right now. Well, you know, um, so, you know, I just wanted to quickly, you know, and I don't know if Ric Flair drip counts as a as a as a trap tomb, but I just kind of wanted to quickly go over that because I'm, I'm sure there are a couple of folks who would have no idea, uh, you know, what T was talking about when it comes to the trap. Um, uh, please. Have, have to, you got a drip tray? Do I have a I do have a I have a, a, a drip a drip box, mm. a drip box is in right. the bedroom. All right. um, um, so, yeah. Um, shout out to Migo. <laughs> shout out to um, Offset and, you know, all the folks that are, are going to be mentioned. You know, of course, T.I., Gucci, Young Thug. You know, I could I could go on. But anyway, be sure to stick out for that. Uh, stick around for that conversation. Uh, but before we got into the third movement where T is going to uh, take a stand, um, I wanted to uh, go back quickly to um uh, Black Panther. So as you were watching um, the movie in the theater, especially for the first time, I'm sure the sounds were uh, sort of u- uh, ubiquitous of uh, of Marvel, you know, of 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 that for you. But did you sense a different? 
flair on it? I mean, did it feel more black, maybe more African than, you know, the Captain America soundtrack, I guess? Is that Marvel? Did I get it right this time? Yes, okay. very good, yeah. No, um, to, to be honest with you, I was really struck by the visuals first. Yeah, yeah, of course, and how, of course. You know, uh, amazing, all the choreography for the, the fight scenes, all of this was amazing. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the music fit in so seamlessly. It was just one of those things that how can you single one thing out um to me it just seemed like it it seemed familiar in in you know in the black centric nature of it but you could tell that whoever did the sound design kind of took some took some of their own liberties yeah i mean i I was really drawn you know by it and of course you know uh i was down there on the radio in knoxville um at that point so of course after i saw the film the first thing i was going to do is uh, go put some of the music on the radio so you know i go up and look up um who who wrote the score and I, honestly, yes, of course, I was expecting somebody black, but it was not. It was actually a Swedish composer named Ludwig Göransson, mm. and uh, Ludwig has, you know, you know, won awards for you know the the music he's done on um, uh, uh, Black Panther and, and other you know black projects. Um, also played a huge role in Childish Gambino's "This Is America," mm. you know. So this Swedish. Um, music creator, composer, you know, really playing a big role in, you know, black art. And listen, I have uh, been there for his acceptance speeches and listened to a couple interviews. He really seems like he is um, putting respect on what he's trying to craft and what he's trying to do, you know, in collaboration with uh, black art and, and, and black artists. And I was, you know, I was wondering if you had thoughts as far as, you know, um, if you think there's a conversation there, we always talk about allyship. And, you know, when we see Black Panther, you know, we see blackness to the front. And, you know, this was a really great opportunity for someone so talented to, you know, play an important role without having to take the space of, you know, the visual or of the spotlight or, you know, really playing an integral role from the back seat, if you will. I think it's a good example of the way collaboration should work. Um, And, you know, we've talked uh, before about how we're talking about inclusion of black people in this music, not to the exclusion of white people. And I think that this is a great example of how something good can come from a from a thoughtful collaboration. And it's mostly black, obviously. Black Panther, is. this is America, you know, a black thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the critiques of inclusion is, well, that still maintains the power structure, the hierarchy of we're bringing you into this space. People, look, hashtag I'm rooting for everybody black. Obviously, it's all that there. But I think it's also important to note that it is possible for there to be some positive uh, collaboration, you know. So as we honor, um, you know, the late Chadwick Boseman and and think about, you know, for for me, thinking about the impact he made um, with with Black Panther, I can't separate the music from that because it was such a a powerful moment for me as well and a moment for me to affirm blackness um, to my then uh, radio audience. Um, one of the first questions I ask uh, T in the interview is, you know, about the implications of a so-called Wakanda, a, a black 
you know, center and how even, you know, that thing has to be critiqued as we uh, think about what government is these days with what's going on in Washington and X, Y, and Z. So um, as we get into that conversation, I thought we would uh, transition here with a little of Ludwig Göransson's music uh, from the score to Black Panther. It's so interesting that you you say that because a few weeks ago on my Twitter, I it was in response to Beyonce's Black is King. And I'm gonna be fully transparent. I Please. have yet to to watch it because I just I just don't I haven't been in a place to feel like I wanna experience that type of I'm gonna air quote it black art or black art trademark with the capital B, capital mm-hmm. A, um, and, and all of the things. But I quote tweeted the teaser that Beyonce's team had put out for Black is King. And I just said, I'm ready to abolish the Wakanda industrial complex, right? Mm. <laughs> and I and when I said that, I got a lot of pushback because people took it as either one, I wasn't well read enough on Africa and the African diaspora, um, which is funny because Black feminist thought and African diaspora studies are both my subfields. So it's not that at all. Mm-hmm. It, but they were thinking that I was so underread about Africa or Pan-Africanism that I would just reduce all images of Africa in its glory to something in the genealogy of Wakanda. And that is not what I was trying to do, but also it is what I was trying to highlight because something like that Black is King and Wakanda and all of the things, while I think it's revolutionary to see images of the black imaginary portrayed on screen, it's important to root those fantastic, I guess, fantastic images of blackness in the idea that actually, no, this is an alternate reality. Like this could be happening now if the histories of colonialism and anti-black violence didn't exist, right? And so as I see people digging back into the things about Black Panther and Wakanda that made those moments so special, especially in centering Chadwick, I'm okay with the folks who engage it as like, as for what it was, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, An amazing moment, probably the biggest moment in Black art and Black culture that we've experienced in our contemporary sort of generations. Um, the possibility and the imagination that it has given Black youth is is obviously something that we can't get away from and we can't take away from people. But also, it often comes with the idea that those images are only possible if we work hard enough, if we amass enough wealth, if we somehow find intergenerational wealth that Black folks across the diaspora think we don't have. It's this notion that even in being shown through Wakanda or through a Black is King, right, that Blackness is plural, Blackness is beautiful, Blackness is has the, the possibility to do these things. We still think that the only way that we have access to that is through some extra extraordinary means of, of acquiring and accumulating capital. And that's where I sort of draw the line. I saw that 
come up just when thinking back on Wakanda, but then also thinking about Chadwick himself. And I saw a tweet where somebody was like, he did seven movies in four years while fighting cancer. What's holding you back from doing? And I'm like, huh? Like A, a lot of other this, things. This, this, <laughs> it's, it's ableist, right? It's yeah. anti-Black, right? But then it's also, I would love to see us take up images of the Black imaginary and the Black possible without it always being reduced to Blackness as is, is not enough, is not working hard enough. When in reality, we have to unlearn and decolonize the way that we think and move in this world to be able to see the wealth and abundance that we already have and how that can be deployed into making our present reality as revolutionary as what we imagine a Wakanda or Black is King sort of world to be. Yeah, you you use phrases like um, cultivating uh, wealth and building capital. I know from you know following your work that you know you really define um, a city as being rooted in that. You know the purpose of a city is is capital. You know maybe why we even use the word capital as it applies to um, cities is the idea of a black city um, problematic uh, from your perspective in that regard? You know, we talk about how black capitalism isn't going to save us either after all, right? Yeah. No, it absolutely is. I get online all the time and say, abolish the mayor, abolish the city council, abolish the idea that you need an individual leader, abolish the idea that you need to be a part of some corporate elite to matter because those are the things that in cities like give you this moniker of value in the same way that a neighborhood, right, being associated as slum or ghetto mm -hmm. has no value beyond its possibility, which is why they're often seen as nowhere now and able to be contaminated or completely destroyed. And then something new is able to be put there. And then what's new has to be what's thriving, right? Yeah. It's the inherent anti-blackness of capitalism on top that spatializes blackness in a city in a certain way based off of value or non-value that I think we should we have to pay attention to. And that even if a city ascends to the place of being what we call a chocolate city or a black city, mm -hmm. where the population is predominantly black, where maybe the biggest leaders are black, and in the case of a place like Atlanta, even your cultural and, and business elite are largely black. Right. 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 Now, they don't have near the same amount of capital, wealth, resources or affluence that their white counterparts to, because Atlanta is interesting, because while we have every rapper under the sun here and mm -hmm. a Tyler Perry here and Tyler Perry studios here and all of these wonderful things. Right. And we have the black mayor named Keisha and we have her predominantly black council. We also live in a city that is the birthplace and headquarters of Coca-Cola, of Home Depot. Home of to Delta CNN. Airline. Yes, CNN, Cox Media, Turner Media, which is Cartoon Network and all of the things. Uh, Georgia Tech is here, just like the AUC is here. Emory University is here in the same way that the AUC is here. But just naming those alone, what's a Tyler Perry Studios to a CNN? Right. What, a, you know, what is the AUC to an Emory or Georgia Tech? And so Atlanta gets packaged and sold as this chocolate black city 
where all of these possibilities are a thing. As a Wakanda, you... as one rapper said exactly, once. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was going to get to that. Right. If you if you ascend to this level of wealth, like a TI, it can also be your Wakanda. But that's not like the reality for most of us, right? Because the most of us are at the behest of these same institutions. And so when I say a city is a site, is the literal like embodiment of what capitalism looks like. It's the unevenness of capitalism, the requirement of obscene wealth, while also the requirement for obscene destitution or like people with just nothing. At living right beside like people who are, you know, ascending the ladder rapidly um, with folks who sort of just stay in the same classes generationally. And so it's this mixed bag that at the end of the day, we have to realize that no matter where we sit on this level, whether you're the head of Coca-Cola or you're the shelterless person across the street, your position is relative to the mode of production that then makes that city as a capital is as a capitalist institution, the place where all of these things come together as what we then recognize as the accumulated wealth of the city as an institution. Mm -hmm. And so as our mayor, who I'm absolutely not a fan of, and many other leaders constantly remind us the things that we do are for Atlanta, right? We have to be one Atlanta. We have to be a solid mm. Atlanta. So like trap culture has to be an Atlanta culture. It doesn't get to be just like black folks in certain neighborhoods in Atlanta's culture. Like, you know, Coca-Cola doesn't get to be an Atlanta culture. It has to be a global export of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So every time you open a Coke from here until, you know, maybe South Asia somewhere, it's still you're opening something produced and marketed in Atlanta. Right. And so there's this this sense, this sentiment here that Atlanta's too busy to hate, which we know it's not. And there's a sentiment here that Atlanta influences everything. Our culture, our everything sort of influences the world. And all of those things are true, but we have to root all of those things, the good, the bad, and ugly about it, in the idea that it's all based on the concept of Atlanta as a global capitalist institution that requires black death and black destitution to exist at all. Yeah. And that's the part of the work of having a black city or a Wakanda or some imagined like black prosperity land under capitalism that most of us don't want to wrestle with. Yeah, yeah. And when we're actually going to um, loop back around to, you know, some of those city discussions and even to into uh, trap music. But uh, I want to uh, I want to rewind into some, you know, some earlier uh, music than, than trap music. So, you know, we uh, on this podcast, we always affirm, you know, the phrase classical music as being music that's foundational to a person's lived experiences. Um, but but before I, you know, asked you about, you know, what music is classic to your lived experience. I wonder what your relationship is with classical music, um, as it were, because, you know, uh, the city of Atlanta is home to one of the great symphonies in the world. Is, is this something yeah. you've ever been engaged by or engaged with? So I actually love the Atlanta Symphony, and they do these, they occasionally do shows in Piedmont Park, which is our largest park, which is super nice. I've done that before. Um, and I actually grew up a orchestra kid in in high school i was a musical theater geek oh that wow. was me and so i still carry a lot of that um so i played violin viola and cello um violin being my primary instrument and then i sang in um traditional school chorus and city chorus and all the choruses for many years i think from i don't know like age eight until i graduated high school 
But then also while doing those things, I was also active in my Black church choir. In high school, we started a gospel choir. When I went to college at the University of Alabama, I joined just the um, the, the university's Black gospel choir. Um, and so I guess my experience when you talk about classical sounds and like what is foundational to you, even in all of those, I guess, trainings and like formal teachings, I always had like that resistance of like black sound and black music, mm-hmm. you know, pushing it. And honestly, those sounds are what drove me to play the instrument. I had never been to a traditional symphony orchestra, but I did always love Ray Charles. <laughs> and yeah. I love Ray Charles for his orchestra, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and Ray Charles is a native of Georgia, you know, mm-hmm. Georgia on my mind is is a direct sort of, I guess, tie between when you think about Black music and our own classical lived experience. I mean, Ray Charles will tell you he was trained in country music and, and Negro spirituals and, and the Black gospel church. But then when you gave him an orchestra, we got Georgia on, on my mind and all of all of his genius hits that are uh, in a similar vein. So I just always think it's interesting, like when you see Black folks whether they be sharecroppers like Ray Charles or just like a country kid from a town like Macon who just knew soul and R&B and blues and hip hop, but then given a violin, I always reread my classical teaching through that, through those yeah. lenses. So it's, it's yeah, it's always, I guess, a conflict for us. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day That's really beautiful, you know, and you mentioned the Negro spiritual, and when it comes to American um, classical music, uh, as it were, so-called classical music, you know, I think the Negro spiritual is absolutely foundational. Every American music was born from that soil, you know, but my challenge, um, at at least in my my own musical development, were the religious implications of the the Negro Mm -hmm. spiritual. I felt like I couldn't really be connected with it because I was never particularly um, religious. Uh, when we expand that idea into uh, the work of so many of the black leaders of the past, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, um, Malcolm X, some, so many of these folks, you know, um, houses and bodies of worship were sort of that home base in a, in a similar way. Um, is that something that you've ever struggled with, the, the relationship between uh, religion or the perceived need to connect religion to black uh, liberation? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, as both an organizer and as a musician, I can I see that and I've definitely experienced it. And it wasn't until I got into adulthood and I got into black queer communities in Atlanta and started expanding my notion and my thinking and my just knowledge of like spirituality versus mm. religion itself and, and sort of doing alternative readings and listenings and just understanding that it wasn't about like the Christianity of it all or, or the, the Islam of it all, if we're talking Malcolm X. Yeah. But it was more about the power of religion, resistance to religion and those spaces within that, that black folks have crafted out for ourselves. So if you go all the way back to the plantation, on the front end, it sounds like a spiritual, but you also have to understand that at the time, Black captives weren't an English-speaking people. 
or Spanish-speaking people or French-speaking people. And oftentimes if they got English, French, or Spanish, it was through religious teaching, right? And so if I'm work, if I'm laboring in the fields as a slave and I know all of us speak the dominant language through religious doctrine, but the way that we inherently communicate is something musical. Mm -hmm. Why not make music coded as communication, right? And we create our own sort of just like counterintuitive to the to the power structure space of resistant spiritual being. And so it's super dope, like the labor that went into that, that it's fugitive, right? It's evading capture. It is our own way of communicating. It is on the front end read as something religious, but it's not actually religious at all. It's a spiritual connection. And it's a conversation that can't be heard or interpreted by the white gaze or by whiteness or by the master or the capturer or anything that we're trying to escape. And I think that part of it is the foundation of all American music, which is to say that Americana or American music in all of his iteration is just black music. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think having community and just rereading and understanding my own blackness and blackness itself like through these sort of revolutionary ideas taught me that it's actually okay to find like radical blueprint in church because it wasn't about mm. the churchiness of it it or was it you know like the, how we relate in churchiness because no matter what you go through through the week back in the day you knew you'd see your whole community on sunday right and right. so that will always be the place if we're gonna do something it should happen at the church or around the church. And it's also hard to powerful. separate the it's hard to separate the narrative of, you know, the Exodus story from what, you know, those black folks were going through, you know, so Absolutely. The, the, the narratives were, were, were so powerful as well. Even, but, but, but I like the way you frame that. It's not about the Christianity of it all, but, <laughs> but, but the spiritualness, that spiritual connection, you know, the, 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 the spirit of blackness, you know, and that spirit of resistance. Right. Because it's like, I don't care if you speak one language and I speak another, right? We play two different instruments, right? But we know what rhythm is. Yeah. We, you know, better, we, better than most, may, my, yes. might I add. <laughs> exactly. So we, we know what those are. So without speaking, I could stomp and you could clap and we could always communicate. And, and it is what it is. And we could say it sounds like gospel. <laughs> How the yeah. stomp claps come out. But we know what we really doing. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, in the same way that, you know, the language was a tool, I, I share with you um, information about some um, some foundational uh, orchestral works by black composers, you know, how they use that, you know, European model as a tool of resistance. Do and, and, and this counts for, you know, in or outside of music. Do we have a structural uh, loophole in, in, in that same way? Many would argue that it's the vote, but I'm sure you have uh, opinions about that. I don't think it's the vote. Uh, I think our loophole in that, our structural loophole, is the way blackness lives and survives despite all of the chaos. Like our being is is always in crisis. Like you don't get the spiritual without the plantation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in the same way that there is no jazz without the plantation because right. you needed that mixture of sounds. You know, you needed those mixtures of culture. There are no blues without the plantation because 
the blues literally is in direct resistance of the plantation. Yeah. And yeah. so I think um, as many black feminist scholars talk about the loophole of retreat, which is one of my favorite topics discussed in, in black feminist writings, um, loop, the loophole of retreat as seen in Harriet Jacobs's um, incidents in the life of a slave girl where she escapes the plantation and instead of, um, you know, going and and succumbing to a forced non-consensual relationship or to stay and be at the behest of the master's terror, mm-hmm. she like stays in an attic space, in a tiny attic space with just like a peephole to the outside world where she feels both safe, but also at risk and in harm's way and in a constant state of crisis all the time. And so I think we have to find these loopholes in these pockets in ways that are both extremely, that open up an avenue for our possibility, but also are still a cage, still a place of being confined. And Mm. somewhere between like the confinement and the escape, we have these counter actions that dismantle whatever carceral space that is is trying to sort of keep us enslaved or keep us captured. And so I don't necessarily think it's voting, but I think it's the everyday way of being Black. Like the very idea, which is why I'm obsessed with trap music and, and trap culture, because Black trap culture like is selling dope, but is also selling plates. It's buying a four-bedroom house and making it 12 rooms and all of the things and the possibilities that happen there. You know, it's all the ways that we have lived despite and survived despite that then creates the laws and the structures to keep us in place. And that sort of poetic of like built structure, resistance to structure, built structure, resistance Mm -hmm. to structure that blackness is and blackness does that then gives us our loopholes, that then gives us these music cultures that we all so cherish and adore and participate in. Yeah, yeah. How, how about we go to the trap since you've uh, you've you've mentioned it. So, um, uh, of course, you know, as you as you've laid out, you know, um, you know, trap culture is 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 about community, is about uh, collaboration, uh, about uh, co co-ness, you know, every, every co you, you can think of as it, as it relates to blackness. But of course, you know, there's also music that comes out of this culture. Um, how, how would you define um, trap music? What, what, what is the role of the music that comes out of trap culture? I think trap music does so much, right? It, it oh, It's my bread and butter. It's everything. So I could talk about it for hours. But the key points that I try to drive home and, and paint for everybody is to trap is to make a way out of no way. Like to be placed in these communities, to inherit all of these generations of trauma and like pain and, and destitution, um, to, to live in these very, very violent uh, communities that are in constant state of crisis, where the only remedy to the crisis that you're being offered is just more crisis, right? Mm-hmm. It's some sort of carceral institution, whether it be the school or the actual prison or, you know, the, the low wage, no dead end jobs. Mm-hmm. Like it literally, you put people in place. And as Ruthie Gilmore talks about, it's the crisis of the surpluses that happens with capitalism. Capitalism always produces too much. And then what happens if capitalism produces too many slaves, too many laborers, too many neighborhoods, mm. too many things for it to care for, right? 
what happens. And so trap cultures that feed into the music come from communities who were denied, they usually an economy. So where there's not an economy, we innovate and we do our own thing. And so I look at trap and what makes trap music what it is as this sound and this lyrical content that is both speaking of a place that is 100% illegible as being a community mm. or a place. Because to privileged eyes and ears and to non-Black eyes and ears, the the horrors of the trap <laughs> the horrors are like, of the trap <laughs> my god like y'all live this and it's to people who live there like yeah we live this and to say that it's wrong right because you know the world works in this right wrong survive punish good bad sort mm -hmm. of um binary right? right that's that's inherently violent You've been told your whole life that every way you know to be either is invalid or just doesn't exist. But there's this music, this whole, we're, I say what, three generations, four generations of trap into trap now as a, as a musical canon or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I just think like each generation shows us the power of black trap work in producing both that sound which is a combination of sounds that is things that are thrown away. I mean, foundationally to the trap is the 808, yeah. right? And yeah. it's like, that's a thrown away instrument. That's a thrown away sound. That's something that had to go be picked up. And in the same way you go get pure drugs and chop them up and stomp on them and mix them with everything but the kitchen sink and you mm -hmm. bag it up and you market it and you sell it. Like when crack was invented, nobody knew that crack was a was a drug. Like it was possible for that to be a thing. Mm -hmm. And then it got into the hoods by all of, you know, the bigger governmental things. And it was packaged into a product that was then necessary for somebody in the community to survive off of and somebody else to capitalize off of. And even though that's inherently violent, the folks who profited off of it also used that money to stimulate an entire sub economy in a community that was denied it otherwise right and so to do the work of wrestling with trap music and the culture that comes with it you have to let go of this idea of what's good and what's bad what's necessary and what's not or what's capable of making music music a lot of the artists a lot of the first trap artists like when you go back and you read the way that people have written about or perceived them they're typically not taken seriously and they, they don't take themselves seriously as rappers. You know, you catch a lot of trap rappers saying, but I'm not a rapper. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I'm from the streets or I'm this, I'm that. And it's, it's like, what does it mean to be a rapper, to be an artist, right? And to say I'm everything else, but I also kind of do this art because we know the art will always be a front because they trap. So right. it's every other activity that they participate in Every other dream that they've had that they don't have access to, they know if I can meet the right person, find a heartbeat, get on it, maybe get somebody to shake a little ass to it at the strip club, you know, or it pop off in the streets, then I now have a new access or a new avenue to success that was otherwise denied to me. And so I think those are the things that you have to listen for and listen to when you listen to the music, whether it's the lyrics, 
the beat, who's on it, their relationship. I'm enamored by artists' relationships. Mm-hmm. Like the way that Gucci Mane spent most of his career in and out of prison, but every time he was locked up, he did the work of bringing along another artist to not just be his placeholder, but to keep pushing the culture. There'd be no future or no no young thug without Gucci going to jail. But while he was gone, he took care and ensured that they would continue the work. And then from them, we get Gunna and Lil Baby and all yeah. these other artists that are taking the world by storm because they were mentored and brought up in this same trap family, the same community. And so there's so many things that become possible when we look at the ways that Black folks throughout history have always trapped and that the way that those trap activities inspired the music. Traptivities, if you will. <laughs> yes, traptivities. <laughs> well, what, uh, what, is, what would you say is the sort of archetypal example of trap music? What, what is the Beethoven Five of trap music? Ah, what is, okay, wow. <laughs> that is, oh, or, or, or maybe even just a starting point for someone who's never, I, you know, experienced the so-called dangers of the trap. So, I mean, obviously, I tell everybody to go back to T.I.'s trap music album. Mm-hmm where an Atlanta even native though, absolutely and I and everybody that I'm going to name on this trap list are from Atlanta as we talk about the foundational text of trap right because it originated here mm-hmm. yes dirty south hip-hop is dirty south hip-hop and that Memphis and Miami and Houston and Atlanta and the Carolinas don't generate the exact same sound or Memphis like we don't generate the exact same sound but it's similar and then the trap cultures that come from that are also very different. But Atlanta's the origin of trap. <laughs> T.I. Yeah. put out the trap music album, stamped it as such, and we get to name it. Name a thing a thing. So I tell people to start there because T.I. absolutely tells you what he's talking about there. Like, he's he says, he lets you know that, like, I've been doing this forever. I've always been doing trap, and now trap has a name. Hey, let's get away. I'm going to roll on the other side of town. Hey, Shorty, I was feeling for you. Hey, what you thinking to me? Hey, 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 let's get a room. Shorty, we can freak something if you're down. What you want to do? Hey, Daddy, I was feeling for you. Well, huh, hey, bet they be like, I know we tired of the nightlife. He want a wife, he just looking for the right type. Yeah, so I put that one there. Obviously, Jeezy's Trap or Die mixtape, and then the Thug Motivation 101, 102, 103 and the recession those albums like jeezy's first four or five albums are absolutely necessary um defoel and shoddy low i'm a huge fan of shoddy low any of their music um are good starting points and then obviously you get into the east atlanta side of things so gucci mm-hmm. the trap god the trap legend all of his mixtapes um the will chamberlain series the no pad no pencil documentary um Anything by Gucci is definitely necessary to have there. And then, of course, the artists that Gucci then burst, right? So your Pee Wee Longway, right. Young Thug, Future, 21 Savage, Migos come out. And I think Migos are important because Migos are made possible because all these other artists had to get some level of legitimacy for Amigos to then come out, make Bad and Bougie, Bougie be an, Bad and Bougie be an international success. And then Migos give us the album culture which every time i listen to culture i'm just like they literally took 
every variation of Atlanta trap sound, whether it be the auto-tune, sing-songy, or just like your hard, like, sunny digital, like, back in the day, DJ Toot sort of hard trap sounds. They took all those sounds and put them in an album and called it Culture. And I love the genius of just calling it Culture because they literally took what Andre 3000 said at the Source Awards and was like, you know, the South got something to say. That was the same move in saying like trap has something to say. Right. Because we, the trappers, the trap sound, Atlanta, our trap activities, we are the culture. Period. Here yeah. it is. And here's a sampler. If you, you know, of all the sounds. Yeah, that <laughs> a <taken>. sampler, yes. <laughs> and informed by all of these artists that I just named, if I were to package it into some sort of perfect near perfect final form to then spark the next sort of wave of the music it it's ends with the migos in that sort of culture moment hey! raindrops drop, drop top drop top smoking no cooking the hot box fucking on your bitch yeah that 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 cooking up dope in the crock pot pot we came from nothing to something nigga. Hey! i don't try nobody grit the trick nobody call up the gang and they come and get gang cry me a river give you a tissue bad and bullshit bad Cooking up dope with a oozy. My niggas are savage, ruthless. Savage. We got thudders and hundred rounds too. My bitch is bad and bullshit. Bad. Cooking up dope with a oozy. My niggas are yeah, savage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's incredible. Traptivities. I think I might even uh, name uh, name this opus of the podcast Traptivities. I think I love I like that it. word. <laughs> uh, I so, think I'm into it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, you're. Um, I think you mentioned this before uh, we turned the mics on. You're you're on your way from Atlanta um, here to uh, Minnesota to continue your. Um, urban uh, studies. Um, before I ask you what you're looking forward to um, experiencing and getting involved with here outside of, you know, school and, and all that sort of thing, um, did you expect for a place like Minneapolis to be where stuff popped off the way it did back in May? I mean, I, 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 I don't want to say that things started here but from my perspective you know after the murder of George Floyd you know that's when we saw shit going down in Philadelphia and Los Angeles and Atlanta you know it, it kind of seemed like um, Minnesota would be this place that's way off in the distance full of white folks that don't care but it, it actually you know kicked off right right here yeah um, it definitely shocked me but not in a way that says it's impossible in a Minneapolis but in a way that it was just like the way that my life was aligned in the moment, you mm -hmm. know, like I decided to go to Minnesota um, in late February, early March, literally right before the mm -hmm. pandemic happened. Um, so that was really interesting. But when George Floyd happened, I think two things have multiple things happened at once. And I think people everywhere were so upset and outraged with the pandemic, right. That we were just waiting on that spark and I hate that it had to be in Minneapolis but I'm happy that it did because oftentimes when things like that happen in cities where we know it to be a thing it doesn't even have to be a deep south thing either because mm -hmm. like a lot of times you know you look at civil rights history or just like anti histories of anti-blackness period people think violences like that are normal in places like the deep south mm. or in the in the colony right if you look at it like global anti-blackness like oh yeah like you can totally see that happening in the colony or maybe in pockets of the metropole you know but not in in, in certain places right and so when it does happen in a place like minneapolis 
where we don't hear a lot about the place specific anti-blackness that happens there or like most recently with uh jacob blake right um you know in kenosha wisconsin not too far from here yeah yeah so it's like are we gonna forget the great migration happened are we gonna forget that anti-blackness is global Mm -hmm. and are we gonna forget that the way that these cities are actually built governed and all of the things right are based on anti-blackness being the basis of the law being the basis of the map and therefore being the basis of how policing exists and works and so when it happens in a place that's not an la or a new york or a chicago or a deep south city it forces us to say that this is probably a national culture of, Mm -hmm. of violence right this is probably a global culture of violence that George Floyd happens anywhere in the world at any time because the uprisings prove that, because past cases prove that, because the cases that have happened since George Floyd, my God, it's September basically. Right. And how many other bodies have dropped since George Floyd all over the map? All of the ones we'll never know about. Right. The ones that, right. The ones that we just, we don't see or that get swept under the rug or that, like Rayshard Brooks comes out, not Rayshard Brooks, Amon Aubrey, excuse yeah, me, yeah. that comes out a month or so later because we are living in a pandemic. And while we're on our phones all the time, even things like that go missing. And so it it shows, it did a lot to show us. We've been joking and saying, shit's getting weird. It's yeah. really weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the weirdness, like the global weirdness of it all is just the anti-blackness of it all. Yeah, that is so loudly anti-black right now, and um, yeah. I think it happening in Minneapolis shown that light on things. Yeah, and you know that uh, I'm glad you frame it. You know, as you use that word violence and really frame it as a global issue, because you know what I what I always go to, what I mourn most is the murder of um, Elijah McClain. You know, mm-hmm. a, a, a black kid who literally played violin for kittens. You know, that's what he literally did. And that that was not enough to absolve him from the dangers and the violence of being black, you know. So, um, you know, I, I think it's really important to, you know, again, not to, uh, as you've laid out, not to scapegoat the deep south or the big coastal cities because it's a national issue. And, and furthermore, you know, a, a, a global issue, um, you know, when you know, when the when the dust settles, if the dust settles, you know, when we're when we're done um, wearing all of the scarves that we liberated from Saks Fifth Avenue and these other places, <laughs> <laughs> um, what does it look like? What what does that society look like to you? And will music survive that revolution? Will there be music on the other side? <laughs> we absolutely have to have music, right? There's no there's no struggle without music because music comes from the struggle. You know, I mean going all the way back to, to the spiritual and the black church and the gospel. And then, you know, black blues and soul artists having the genius to say, I can take that gospel song and make it the mess around. And really, you know, <laughs> right. do, do what it do. Or in the same way that hip hop artists said, I could take that disco song and, and give you a whole new genre. Or I could take that, you know, Caribbean beat, that Caribbean sound. Yeah. And, and make that into a hip hop sound that then later gives us a trap sound that then gives us all of the things that we're playing with now. 
I feel like music in this moment across genres is just such a, I really don't hear much new, Hmm. but I hear a lot of good perfection of, or just amazing, like flushing out the possibilities of old genre. I see. And, And our revolutions are the same thing. What we did um, using revolutionary mutual aid rapid response during COVID-19 is nothing new. Like we've always participated in mutual aid. And honestly, if you're non-white in this world, your cultural existence is mutual aid, you right. know? Um, and so to, to look at the way music right now, both popular music and marginal music are the land of the sample. Like yeah. the very obvious <laughs> sample. Yeah. Like our revolution is like the suite of the best samples because what else would you get from a revolution led by young people who came of age under the internet and like having unlimited, somewhat unlimited access to information and, and connectivity, right? right? You know, I mean, we're having this conversation thousands of miles apart from each other. And we're doing this for entertainment purposes, but we could have absolutely be doing the same thing for revolutionary purposes. And what you're going to bring to the table from your background or from your classical trainings and what I'm going to bring from mine are going to give you a beat, a sound, and a revolution that we've heard before, but not like that. And the not like that is the part that's going to get us free because the not like that is that possibility. And so I don't know what that world looks like. But I know that there's a whole lot possible when we let go of all our chains and cages and just sort of get together and just get in the lab and create um, and, and let drive just like in, in the same way we make music and what feels right, what moves us or what sounds right. Because, you know, like a right sound is a right sound. Like mm-hmm. I hate th- like I'm usually there's no rights or wrongs, but like in music is different. Because it's that tender. It's a feeling. It's the same thing. It's a vibe. Right, it's a feeling. It's a vibe. <laughs> yes. And it's the same with revolution. Like, we could try communism as done by China or by Cuba, or we could try socialism as done by the, the uh, Russians, or, or we could take the streets like Paris, or we could burn the plantations like Haiti, but it's not going to look the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's that, that's something heavy to think about. You know, when when folks, you know, ask me that question, well, what do you want or, or what is the end goal or what does it look like? You know, I'll, I always don't have those exact answers, but I know this ain't it. I know this is not going to work. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, it's no different than taking over the ox court. Like if I'm in the car <laughs> yes. and there's elevator music and I know we got to be in this car for two days, it ain't going to work. I got to find something else. And, and it's nothing wrong with jumping through playlist after playlist until we find what works. And I feel like we have a group of people in this world that are willing to throw down and do the experimentation. And we're being sat down and sidelined by folks that are too scared to just switch it up. Like, just listen to just play something else. <laughs> like, even you're sick of it. We know you're sick of it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and it, it gets frustrating in the work, but it that's also a part of the struggle. It is like, how do I make something feel so right for so many that what used to be the marginal way of being, in the same way that trap was a marginal sound, it's so funny. I read a 
article about um, a French trap artist and it was like written in 2012 and they described him and he does that weird like auto-tune-y sound too and it's like fast forward how many years later and that weird auto-tune-y sound is the standard right <laughs> so right. It, it takes a minute and it takes experimentation but just like I tell you know I love I love trap for so many reasons but my favorite one of my favorite analogies in trap is like being in that mixtape phase where yeah. you just see in the streets and it all that matters is like that the streets rock with you. I feel like as revolutionaries, like we've gotten to that place where as long as the streets rock with us, like when it drops, when it really hits, it comes out swinging. And so I think we're still in the mixtape phase. And I think it's fine because there's a lot of individual activists out there that are co-opting the movement, like your Sean Kings and your DeRays of the world. And they call Sean pretty, King the white DeRay, you know, <laughs> child, they call Sean King a lot of things. <laughs> they call him a lot of things, but an organizer is not one of them. Oh. <laughs> and I look at it and I'm like, those are the artists that get pushed out because something new is necessary. Yeah. Those are the ones that get pushed out because what's new is necessary. Yeah. And, well, and that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, and, and I'm looking forward to you know having you here in Minnesota to to help us rock these streets. How can uh, how can folks learn more about you, catch up, uh, and keep up with uh, the work you're uh, doing on the on the urban study side and on the uh, uh, on the community organizational side of things? Yeah, so pretty much all of my work um, I put on social media. I'm building new avenues for myself at the moment, so we'll we'll see what that looks like. But for now, mainly on Instagram and Twitter at Colonize Local. Um, is is my Twitter name for very intentional reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do In the Middle, which is our YouTube pop culture roundtable sort of uh, critical analysis of all the things with Sean Harrison and Justin James. Yeah, shout out King to them. Reeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we do that work. Um, and that's pretty much where you can find me and catch more. And I'm hoping to drop more soon, especially as school starts. And I have the time and space to write and sort of produce more things. Yeah. You know, um, as, as I said, maybe again, before we turn on the microphones, the first time I heard you use the phrase destroy the world, it was a little scary. The longer I thought about that, the more I saw it and see it as something necessary. We have to destroy the world as we know it and create something that works for not some of us, but all of us. So I really applaud you in, in everything you're doing. Um, and, and thanks so much for, for joining me in this conversation today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You know, it was really moving for me to listen to T um, talk about people who are really trying to push and people who are really trying to change and people who are resisting that, you know, and, you know, I, I have some of, you know, some some drama sort of like that in my life right now. T was not talking about that at all, but it it's something how that is the general um, way things are moving across so many fields, you know, them versus us. You know, there's always the thing of, oh, why can't we just come together? Because there are certain people that don't want us too. There are certain people that don't believe in the progress that's needed for that so-called coming together, you know, and 
um, it, it, it's something for me to hear. It, it, it affirms me to, um, to understand that, as, as you said last week, you know, everybody's feeling a certain kind of way. It's affirming to me to understand that there are a lot of people um, really facing adversity and really um, coming to terms that all of this work is not, like, as we always say, you know, it's not imaginary. There are actual people, actual structures right. that we're fighting against. Refresh my memory. How did you meet them? Uh, so I met T, uh, through, um, the, um, uh, one of the YouTube shows, um, that I watched that they mentioned, uh, in the middle. It's a, you know, it's, I, I think it's great. It's very black centric. It's very unapologetic, but, uh, my good friend, uh, Justin is, uh, one of the co-hosts there. Mm. And, you know, some of the things T was saying about, you know, the implications of a city and talking about what revolution could be just, uh, uh were really attractive to me. And then finding out that they, um, have a, um, an instrument background I thought it might be uh, cool to uh, bring them in and, and, and see what sort of topics we could explore so mm-hmm. yeah I hope uh, I, I hope that was a, a conversation that uh, y'all could appreciate um, well I guess it's triloquy time huh oh look at that it's rain on your Garrett I came across a news story that was sort of shocking at first and then all of a sudden I thought well maybe not and then I started to read again, and I went right back into shocked. Um, did you? So you know that basically California, as a state, is on fire, right? Or much of it is. And uh, anytime they have a lightning storm come through, they're chasing the next batch right. of them. Okay. So did you know that inmates fight fires in California? Prison inmates. In, prison inmates fight fires in California for three dollars a day you can go and now I'm wondering what knock time off man knock time off the sentence if you're going time off set them free well this is if you go and risk your life putting these fires out you are free hell now there but they have a problem this year you know why why because COVID has been running rampant through the prisons so now those teams, those squads of firefighting inmates are now knocked down with COVID. So you put them in a cage, you told them, you sh- they were probably out there shackled fighting the fire. I don't know about that. The coronavirus has swept through correctional facilities and infected many vulnerable California invade- inmates leaving fewer available to help contain more than two dozen major fires and over 300 small ones. They make between 2 and $5 a day, a dollar extra per hour uh, when fighting a fire. So what are your words for the person who okayed this? Uh, is, I want to know if these are the, in the for-profit pro, for system. Because you know that there was a push to get more for-profit prisons going. Right. Because you can see where the people who have a stake in that would make money by having contracts with, uh, I I don't, uh, would that that be a a city level or a state level with, with, with contracting firefighting brigades? I don't know how that would work, but somebody's making money. Is what it comes down to. Somebody is lining their pockets. Somebody is like, okay, we're talking Shawshank Redemption level line in your pockets, right? So, um, number one, I don't think it's right to have inmates fighting fires. Do you? 
No, of course not. I'm fr- I'm frustrated by. And is this an option? Like, is this like saying, "Hey, you can earn three to five dollars a day if you come fight fires." Three to five dollars a day, and they're mm-hmm. risking their lives. Come on, it's not like they're sewing buttons on dresses. They are putting out making fires out plate, here, making a license plate. Right. Come yeah. on, and even then, and even then, we have to. We I have, was shocked. I am an abolitionist. I think we need to open the jails, but let's let let's, let's save that conversation because we're 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 running long here. But um, if even if that is something that had to be necessary, because I understand the fires are out of control out there, that that means you need to be setting them free. That that means they need to be fully exonerated out here, risking their lives. But even then, it's the 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 sort of transactional relationship there. You mm-hmm. go risk your life, you risk dying, and we'll let you go live your all. It's it's layers upon layers of problems. Um, I guess we'll keep an eye on that and see uh, what happens. Um, so um, I didn't mean to sidetrack you by bringing that up. I'm sorry. No, no, that's that. You know, people people need to understand that that sort of thing is going on. That 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 and and there are you know think about the innocent people, that you know the people who did not commit these crimes. You know, uh, victims of the prison industrial complex who are just in jail because that's where the system led them. That's and now they're now they're out here you know putting out a fire for y'all so y'all's mansions and and whatever neighborhoods don't burn up it's gross it's 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 disgusting um look my my little two things so um the first thing i wanted to mention and i thought about whether or not to bring this up how i could deliver this um i sit on the board for um an orchestra um I was offered uh, a little side position to um, consult with programming. I decided to turn it down because I saw the the big thing is that I saw handle handles Messiah on for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Okay, throughout the rest of it, I saw that the big piece, the so-called showstopper for every concert, was something from the canon with you know other things sort of sprinkled in because window we're, dressing. We're, we're we're thinking about the DEI and all that, and even if that's not what they intended, you know, um, I just wanted to say to all of the um, predominantly white organizations, the white-run organizations. Um, as we laid out last week, we're tired. <laughs> Many of us are very tired. Um, Scott, you've laid out this all-black season challenge. If an orchestra is trying to work with me at this point, that's what I'm going to have to see because there are so many grassroots organizations out here, you know, really trying to get started and, and create something that's going to be equitable and um, and focused on folks from uh, marginalized communities. Um, it's, it's not right for me. I don't feel like it's right for me to spend more of my time dealing with organizations who are just going to include and not transform Mm -hmm. that that's Mm -hmm. a conversation I had with somebody trying to get some work out of me earlier today is your organization willing to transform they said yes the folks I was on the phone with earlier today so we'll see where that goes so I just wanted to you know mention um, mention that I'm still sitting on the board you know I'm I'm happy to serve in that way but um, you know we talked. We were uh, earlier in this opus. We were talking about you know Joe Button and him turning down all this money and stuff. I think it's important that we really prioritize you know the magic and and the resource of experience and perspective and and make sure that we're spending it equitably. You know we we want other people to do equitable work. I feel like I have to spend my time equitably. So you know I, I, I wanted uh, wanted to make sure I named that. Um, the 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 big thing 
the, the big, you know, true and real, whatever, that I wanted to address this week. So I was taken off the air at our job. Um, the long and short of it was I um, included programming. I, I, I changed things up in a way that um, is not systematic, in a way that is uh, not according to the rules, you know, as, as a basic um, way of saying it. Um, the, the, the levels of change, you know, I've, I've really been pushing forward, don't happen as quickly as I like. So sometimes I just, you know, more times than not, I just do, you know, what I like. Um, so, and until I'm able to, you know, have a conversation with, uh, management, I've been, um, uh, uh, taken off the air. I'm, I'm still, you know, earning my, uh, my paycheck, but Scott, I wanted to bring this up because we talk about, troublemakers you know we, we we lost you know john lewis you know not too long ago you know mm-hmm. uh everyone using the the phrase good trouble people um always citing oh they sat at those lunch counters oh she didn't get off the uh getting didn't didn't get off the bus or didn't give up her seat you know we talk about all these people who we revere for breaking rules but we ourselves refuse to break rules okay I don't feel like I did something wrong just because I did something against the rules. I feel like I am falling in line with what um, I feel like um, my purpose is. Um, I understand that, you know, you may not feel totally comfortable jumping in, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to um, respond. If there's anything you, you think about this. I think that people should know that you and I, have for the entire two plus years that you've been here, we have kept our interactions with management pretty private, you know. Um, So I have to say that not knowing all of the things that led up to where we are now, um, all I can do is comment on what I see, you know, and there are some things that you bring up that I 100% agree with. And there are stances that the company takes that I can see, that I also understand. Excuse me. I am not uh, intentionally trying to talk out of both sides of my mouth whenever you and I cover these sorts of things. But that is, in fact, the very awkward position that I find myself in, being honest. So as we tape this, um, this is the night before my I was going to uh, ask you when your meeting was. Yeah, yeah. My, uh, my conversation with management. So um, next week I will uh, <laughs> fill y'all in. Um, what I encourage everyone to do, um, think about your, especially the black folks out there, Think about the value you have um, with your perspective, with your expertise, with the way you were able to form something and build something out of nothing. You know, T, how T was talking about uh, with the trap, how you were able to pick, you know, yourself up from, you know, almost nothing or wherever you, you know, come from, or wherever that falls on the scale and land in this predominantly white um, space in which you are charged to make change. Is that something that you're going to do with permission or is that something that you're going to do? Do you have the courage? 